Well, as we open our Bibles this morning, we're going to wrap up our series on the sword and spear. And so if you could turn to um, 1 Samuel chapter 31, um, we're going we're gonna to pick up the end of 1 Samuel and just the, the first chapter of 2 Samuel. Um, originally, this would have been written as one book. And so it's kind of, if it seems like, wow, that's a real cliffhanger and kind of an awkward spot for the book to... It was one book. Um, you got to break these things up when you translate them when they're in big chunks, and so that's um, where that comes from. But um, I'm gonna I'm gonna pray as we um, go to God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your saving grace and your mercy in our lives. Thank you that you are still our rock and our salvation. You are as present for us as you were in the times of your servant David. You have not abandoned us just like you did not abandon him. You are working all the difficulties in our lives for our good and for your glory, just like you did for David. God, may we find just incredible hope in the words that he left for us in the Psalms. And as we look at his story and how you carried him through, God, I pray for our community. I want to pray especially for our, um, the teachers in the schools this week as they either are returning or have returned to the classroom or, or will in this coming week. God, I just pray that you would, um, particularly for those that know you and have a desire to be an example to the young people in our community, God, I pray that you would give opportunities for the gospel. God, I pray that as, as kids return to school, that, that their, um, their minds would be ready to learn. God, I pray for those that are in Christian schools, that they would be receptive to the word of God and not closed off to it like it's another textbook. God, I pray for the kids that will be homeschooled. Um, that, the, that they would make the, tra- make the transition. God, I, I know I'm praying for the kids in my own household here, but I, I just pray that as they, as they learn, they don't just, you know, certainly that they would learn the things they need to know to function in our society, but certainly more than that, that they would learn to trust you. That they would learn to see how you have sustained your people through all time and will continue to do so. God, I pray for us as we open your word this morning. Give us understanding. Give me clarity in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't want to beat any dead horses around here, and and Joel does a great job of killing some horses during announcements. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) What what is our thing where we just take cheap shots at each other? Like whoever's up here gets to take cheap shots at the other people? We're nice to Caleb because he's getting ready to leave. We wish he'd stay, but... um, If you didn't know that, I'm sorry to bust that bubble, um, but be praying, for, be praying for the Winter family as they make a transition in their life to uh, move to Michigan, and I'll hold back tears while I'm saying that, um, and, uh, and certainly we will miss them, not just as a, as a worship leader, but as, as a family and, and part of our church and community, but pray for the church they're going to, pray for the community that they're going to, that they would invite their neighbors to meet and follow Jesus there too. Um, and, and on that note, it's what you know, Joel mentioned about the... The open houses, we just want to really encourage you, if, um, 
If you weren't here last year when a lot of us were doing that in our own neighborhoods, and that sounds like an interesting way to meet some of your neighbors, um, we, seriously, I cannot commend to you highly enough, do an open house, get to know your neighbors. In fact, there's been enough people move in and out of my neighborhood, I think I need to do another one. Um, but it's just such a great opportunity to just show your neighbors that you are, I don't know, that they're welcome in your space, that you want to know them and you want to be known by them. Um, it's really hard to invite your neighbors to meet and follow Jesus when you don't know them. Um, and, I, and I think it goes without saying that we are called to that. So um, certainly your neighbor in scripture is not limited to the person you live next to, but I am very certain it includes the person you live next to. Um, so, uh, all right, as we, as we look at, at the... At, at this series, as we close out, we're going to close out the series, Sword and the Spear, this morning, and I just want to give a little bit of kind of review um, for this series. So what we have done throughout this is looked at different kind of vignettes, different stories. We've skipped a lot, and we, I make no apologies, there was no way we were going to cover all of it, um, but we wanted to kind of skip around and look at, look at instances where the sword and the spear are particularly prominent in the story. And by that I mean, you know, often we would see the phrase, his spear was in his hand, or he had no sword in his hand. And those are always, you know, those were always indicative in these stories of times when the, the person being talked about was either trusting in God for his salvation and strength, or trusting in his own strength and his own means. Um, and so as we, as we looked at that, and, and it's, it's such a contrast between Saul and David, both um, anointed by Samuel to be king over Israel. Um, one, well, anyway, we'll get into some comparisons at the end of my notes. I don't want to skip ahead too much. But, um, but as we look at that contrast between the two, you know, the, the sword and the spear, as they really in their lives faced different tests and trials, um, we saw Saul failing repeatedly, and not just failing in areas of temptation, but, it, but, it, but then as, as he kind of, it's, it seems like there's a point where he almost gives up and he, he's, he's almost just pursuing wrong, uh, certainly chasing after David as, as though he were going to secure his throne by killing the one under God's protection. Not a great plan, but <clears throat> that was his attempts. And so... Um, so what we're going to read here in verse 31, I, I just want to couch it a little bit in some context. I wish we had had time and space in this series to go through chapters 28, 29, and 30. Um, there's some powerful lessons in there, but we don't. And none of you want to be here till 3 p.m., so we're not going to. But, but, but Saul is getting ready to go into a battle with the Philistines. Which are, which are the enemies of Israel. They are remnants of the people that, you know, if you remember when Joshua was leading the people into the promised land, they were, they were told, there's a bunch of very evil people living in this land. God said, I basically want you to purge the land of these people. That, that's a little hard for us to swallow in Western 21st century world. But we don't stand in moral judgment over God. He stands in moral judgment over people. And when that was his decision, that was what should have been done. And they didn't do that. 
and they had to deal with the Philistines from that point forward. And so here we are, many, many, many years later, um, still dealing with it. Anyway, and so Saul is getting ready to go into battle with the Philistines, and he's kind of paranoid. He has good reason to be paranoid. Um, the last, some of the last things the, the prophet Samuel said to him is, you, the kingdom has been torn away from you and given to your neighbor who is better than you. Um, that'll create some insecurity in a leader. Um, <clears throat> but he chose to continue to try to hang on to the position of leader of the nation, which um, I think we would have been, everybody would have been better off if he had not, but that was his choice. And, and so he decides he needs... He remembers Samuel, and, and he needs some kind of, he needs a word from the Lord, and he just has this sense that God doesn't, God is not really interested in listening to me. Maybe if I could talk to Samuel, Samuel could talk to God for me and maybe put in a good word for me. There was just like a real big problem with that. Um, Samuel was dead at this point. <clears throat> and so Saul <laughs> seeks out a woman in the land who is called a seer, or uh, older translations would call her a witch, but that sounds fancier than it really was. Um, or the modern word would be prophet or prophetess. And, uh, but, but, but that's kind of a blanket term, and, and we tend to use the word prophet to refer to people who are speaking God's words that have been given to them, and this certainly would not apply to someone like this. There were it was a chaotic time in the nation of Israel. We don't have time to couch all of that. But, but Saul goes to this woman and, and says, listen, I need, you to, um, I need you to conjure up the spirit of Samuel so that I can talk to him. Okay, I want to be really clear. That's not a thing you can do. Um, any, any amount of, of that that claims to be done, um, you're... you're <laughs> Anyone who claims to be doing that is communicating with demonic spirits. Our souls can't be summoned back up by other people. Just want to be really clear about that. However, in this instance, God works in this instance and allows the spirit of Samuel from, from the other side to speak. Speak God's words to Saul. And I'm going to back up here to, um, to the, the, uh, chapter 28 where he, where he says this. And, and so first of all, it, it really scares the person who, you know, the, this, the seer of, of Endor. Uh, it scares her because she's not used to this actually working, um, <clears throat> for one thing. And uh, she, he, he says, she says, I see, a man, I see a God coming out of the earth. And he said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up. This is in verse 14 of chapter 28. An old man is coming up and he's wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. And Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I'm in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I've summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since Yahweh has turned from you and become your enemy? 
Yahweh has done to you as he spoke by me, for Yahweh has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of Yahweh and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore Yahweh has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, Yahweh will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. Yahweh will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Whoa. Not the message he was hoping for. Um, and so if chapter 31, I wanted to couch that in that because chapter 31, he goes to battle anyway. Uh, now, it was, that battle was coming to him, so it wasn't like he could have avoided it. But he goes to battle anyway, and this is how it goes. Chapter 31, starting in verse 1. Now, the Philistines fought against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and, and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell on it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth, Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabeth-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went, and went all at night, all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and, buried, and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. It's a tragic end to a tragic character. <clears throat> um, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't like to refer to him as a character in the story like he's not real. He, he's a real person. And, and, and this happened, all of these things happened to Saul. And it's really sad to read his end. And it's even sadder in some ways to watch his decline throughout all these chapters that we have looked at throughout 1 Samuel. But I want to look at this. There's, and I hate to skip around, but there is a... In 2 Samuel chapter 1, you may have to turn one page with me here, but in, in 2 Samuel chapter 1, David 
sings a song of lament that he writes about Saul and Jonathan, his son. And so I want to I skip ahead and read this here. <clears throat> um, chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, starting in verse 17. And David lamented with, his lam- with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. Your daughters, O Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother, Jonathan. Very pleasant you have been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How, might, how the mighty have fallen, the weapons of war perished. It's a beautiful tribute to them. But, but that phrase, how the mighty have fallen, um, there's a, um, and I, I, I want to I, I share some insight with you. That, that phrase, how the mighty have fallen, and this, 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 you know, the decline of, of Saul um, it was one of the, part of the inspiration for um, a, a business productivity guru, Jim Collins, uh, who's written tons of books in that space, wrote a book called How the Mighty Fall, um, inspired by, by this, by the phrase there in this. And, and, and I want to share with you, because it's, it's a cautionary tale. Saul's entire life is a cautionary tale. And I think it, the insights, some of the insights um, from his book, which I read a long time ago, and I'm not going to preach his book to you. Okay, I promise. But I just want to share with you um, some of the things that I, that I think will be helpful. Um, first of all, he, he identifies five stages of decline. The first is hubris born of success. That's a good word, hubris. Um, it's, it's more than just pride. Um, it kind of means pride, but it's more than that. Hubris, it's, it's a word that often uh, refers to excessive pride that brings down a hero or an outrageous arrogance or entitlement that inflicts suffering upon the innocent. And so the first stage of decline, and, and we have that in Scripture, that, the, that um, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Um, and, and many, many other verses in, in which pride is condemned and humility is exalted. Um, typically, hubris sets in when past accomplishments create a sense of invulnerability and also a sense that there's a guarantee of success. We look at Saul's life. He was the, he was the crown jewel of the tribe of Benjamin. He was 
head and shoulders taller than everyone else. He was a valiant warrior. He was almost a celebrity. And then he was a celebrity. The second stage of decline um, identified in that book is, is the undisciplined pursuit of more. Um, <clears throat> it's confusing big with great. Bigger isn't always better. Um, and obviously, this is coming from a business-type book, um, but, it, but it is very interesting how biblical, well, I mean, he pulled a lot of it out of, out of Scripture um, and then just applied it to business, but it, but it is just incredible how this applies to, to our, own, our own lives, the dangers of pride, the, um, the dangers of, of an undisciplined pursuit of I'm going to get more. Um, the next one, denial of risk and peril. Uh, the tendency here is to amplify the positive and discount the negative. Only focus on the things that are going well and don't really even address the things that are going uh, badly. Um, grasping for salvation. You know, at this point, you're, you're, you're looking for a silver bullet or the next big thing that will solve our problems and turn things around without actually dealing with the real issues. And the, the last stage of decline in how the mighty fall is capitulation to irreverence, ir- irrelevance or death. Um, you know, if you've heard the phrase, for whom the bell tolls, uh, at this point, the bell is tolling. And the ability to make strategic decisions is replaced with day-to-day survival decisions. Uh, and have you ever feel that way in your own life, like you're drowning and you can't even see past this weekend or this month? This stage is often marked by false integrity. I can't stay at a place like this or I'm going to go down with the ship. Um, these kind of attitudes. And <clears throat> so anyway, that's, that's all I wanted to say about that. But I wanted to share that with you, these stages of decline. It's important, you know, when we look at a character like Saul, and here is his end, this tragic end, and it is tragic. It, it would be easy to think, oh, good, now he's out of the way. Now David can be king, and, you know, everything's looking up now. But it's important to take stock and to, and to identify what went wrong. And um, that's a cautionary tale um, to even our own lives. <clears throat> okay. So, anyway, so Saul goes to battle and he experiences um, exactly what Samuel told him, what God told him through Samuel would happen. <clears throat> Second Samuel chapter 1, I, I want to read this, this part that we skipped here. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. Okay, so, so I want you to remember, Saul's in one battle. David's not in that battle. David is off fighting somewhere else. Saul's fighting Philistines. David's fighting Amalekites. And I know it's real hard to keep track of which enemies of Israel are which. We kind of just lump them all together and, you know, the somethingites. And, uh, and, and they just kind of, whatever. They're all the same. And no, David, David is, we don't have time to go into where David's been and what he's doing, but, but David's been off at battle somewhere else, and he comes back. He remained two days in Ziklag, which was the, the Philistine city that he was um, kind of, he had found sanctuary there, I guess. Um, he's not even in Israel. He remained two days in Ziklag, and on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. That was always a, a sign of mourning. And when he came to David, he fell on the ground and paid homage. And David said to him, where do you come from? 
And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him, and, and when he looked, a, he looked behind him, he saw me, and he called to me, and, he answered, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. We'll circle back to that. That's important. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he would not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Okay, so here's... um, David comes back, he has no, I mean, he knows there's a battle going on because he's been living in Philistine territory and the guy in charge was going to have him go with him as kind of like this mercenary army, like, eh, I can make David fight against his own people. And then all of that guy's friends were like, whoa, 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 we know who he is. He is not coming to the battle with us. Um, so he had to stay behind and he went and fought somewhere else. And, and so... Um, <clears throat> So David doesn't, he knows there was a battle. He has no idea what has happened. He's, he's back from his battle in his city, and this young man comes bringing news. And, and, and so it's clear that he's mourning. He shares with him these details, you know, that, 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 there, that there was a battle. It went real bad for, um, for the, the people of Israel, and uh, Saul and Jonathan are, are dead. And, and and David says, well, okay, maybe, maybe you heard that somewhere. How do you know he's dead? And he's like, well, actually, um, yeah, it kind of happened on him, and, and I, he, I killed him because he asked me to. And um, so it's okay. And then I, I, brought, I knew you should be the next king, so I brought you. I brought the crown and, and armlet because these, these should be yours now. Um, <clears throat> first of all, this guy is looking for a reward. He's... Remember what, one of the things we, we, we learned in one of the previous ones was that people are always trying to ingratiate themselves to people who are in power. And so here, here this, this messenger comes and he, he brings the crown and armlet to David here. These are, your, you know, these are yours now. And I, I, you know, I, I brought them. I'm just, I'm just trying to do the right thing here. And um, it mentions just in like this little side note that he's an Amalekite. Why does it mention that? Well, um, we don't have time to actually turn there and go all the way back to it, but if you remember where the decline of Saul really, really started, the event where, where Samuel basically cut him off and said, it's, you're done. You, you've, you've sinned against God. You didn't do what God told you to do. The kingdom is torn away from you. Do you remember what the event was? Saul had been told by God to go and do battle against the Amalekites. And he was supposed to not leave a single one of them alive, and he was supposed to not take any of the spoil. 
Any of the, you know, he's, all, all of that was supposed to be God's, but, you know, you know, some of the men took stuff, and he's like, well, it's not my fault. They just took it, and what was I supposed to do? And, and Samuel says, yeah, nice try. It's not someone else's fault. You didn't do what God told you to do. And also, you left one really important person alive, the king of the Amalekites. And, and it, so, so stick with me here. Because he left an Amalekite alive, the kingdom was torn from him. And after he was dead, an Amalekite took his crown off his head. It's quite poetic. And it's quite a picture that God did not forget his judgment that he had pronounced against Saul. But there's a problem. See, the story that this guy tells David is, well, I mean, it's fresh in our minds. We literally just read how Saul died in the previous chapter, and this guy's story is different. And so here's just an incredible example of an, a contradiction in the Bible. And most of the people that tell you about all these contradictions in the Bible couldn't actually point to one. Um, but I'll just tell you, here's one that if they knew about, they would point to. Except I, I just want to clear up how it's not a contradiction in the Bible. You ready for this it's a complicated explanation? He's lying. <clears throat> the Bible records for us in chapter 31 of verse Samuel, which we just read, what happened. And then it accurately records in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel what the guy said. The Bible at no point in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, at no point does Scripture say that the guy's story is true. It just says he said it. And, of course, the guy's an Amalekite, so he has no idea that um, in the nation of Israel, um, even though they're kind of new to this whole king thing, um, raising your hand against the Lord's anointed is, um, at, we, don't, we don't do that here. Um, I mean, unless you're Saul, he did it quite a few times, but you're really not supposed to do that. And that was kind of a big theme with David. This guy clearly does not know who he's talking to. He is talking to someone who has stood right over top of Saul while he was asleep next to his spear and didn't kill him. This is not someone who is going to appreciate and, um, and be giving gifts and rewards to the person who raised his hand against the Lord's anointed. So, there you go. Contradiction in the Bible. Also, that'll be really fun the next time somebody tells you about how there's all these contradictions in the Bible, but then they can't point one to you. And, and then so you show them this one, and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that, I was totally thinking about that. And then you explain how it's not actually a contradiction. That'll Just let me know how that goes. It's a fun, fun conversation. But let's pick it, up, pick it back up here in, um, in verse 11. And David took hold of his clothes and tore them. That is his own clothes. Now he is, he's mourned. that's a sign of mourning. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner and Amalekite. David said to him, How is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? 
uh-oh. <laughs> you know that scene in Aladdin where uh, he gets Jafar the lamp and he's like, now you shall have your reward? This is kind of like that. <clears throat> Except David's not a bad guy. Never mind, it was a bad example. Um, how is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. <clears throat> There's some debate among some people whether or not David acted rightly in this execution. Um, but I, I want us to look at it this way. According to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, um, to be willing to do something is akin to doing it. And, and this, this, this man's confession of this horrible act, which he doesn't realize at the time is um, going to get him in so much trouble, but his, his own confession, he says, your own mouth has testified against you. David, it, it, I mean, there's no way David could even know the whole story at this point, okay? And so, it, I mean, he's, it's three days after the battle, and he just heard about it for the first time, how it happened, and so it, it kind of doesn't matter that the guy didn't actually do it. He confessed to doing it with the full intention of receiving the consequence of doing it. He just thought the consequence was going to be a lot of money. It turns out it was his life. And so David's justice is swift. There's, an, there's another, just a few chapters ago we studied where, where he's in the camp and they're all asleep and he's, he's there with uh, um, um, whatever his name is, Joab's brother. And uh, he says, for who can raise his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? This guy just confessed to it. I mean, if anyone had a, 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 a right to take Saul's life, certainly, surely it would be David. And David decided, no, I don't. That is, he is, he is anointed. He is God's problem essentially. Like, he's kind of my problem, but he's not my problem to deal with. God will deal with him. Who can raise his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? I want to spend the rest of our time looking at this, um, this song that David shares. It, it, what David does here is um, he offers us a master class in taking the moral high ground. Um, in this psalm here that we, that we just read, he remembers positive things that are, as the kids say these days, true facts. Are they still saying that? I don't know. It moves so quickly, and I'm not in youth ministry anymore, so it's really hard to keep up with. Ethan, do they still say that? Well, all your youth group kids are homeschooled, so how would you know? Um, <laughs> at least one of them's mine. So, um, <clears throat> but he he mentions things that are that are true and positive things about Saul. Okay, Saul's dead. Saul's Saul is not 
anyone's, he's not David's problem anymore, but he's also like, I mean, he's not even here to defend himself. He's not, I mean, the court of public opinion is not where Saul is tried and sentenced. And that is really important. What David does here, and he says, he writes the song and he says that it should be taught to the people of Judah. Judah was David's tribe, not Saul's tribe. Of course, Benjamin is going to, the tribe of Benjamin will mourn him. You know, they're still kind of, you know, and their tribes and stuff. But, but he, he's like, no, no, no. Everybody needs to learn this song. Everybody needs to remember Saul and Jonathan this way. And he purposely does not add in there, yeah, maybe you didn't know, but here's all these, here's all the dirty laundry. Oh, maybe you thought Saul was a great guy, but let me tell you some things. David doesn't take that posture. He doesn't take that position. He takes the moral high ground here. And, and, and really, he, he's now the spiritual leader of the nation. He will also, included in that nation, is the tribe of Benjamin. He's not just being political here. He's being appropriate. It's not helpful to remember Saul, you know, to then just air all the dirty laundry and like, oh, you thought he was like kind of bad. Let me tell you, he was really bad. He's, he's not doing that. He remembers positive things that were actually true. I mean, he's also not, also the other side, he's not making up, like, well, I couldn't think of anything nice to say, so I made up some stuff. No, it's, he's not saying that either. He understands that his own experiences with Saul were his, not anyone else's. The, the beef between, between Saul and David, that, that wasn't the experience David had with Saul, other people didn't necessarily have that experience except for Jonathan that one time when um, Saul threw the spear at him. But anyway, <clears throat> no one else got chased around the wilderness. Uh, again, unless you worked for David, uh, then maybe you did. But, you know, like the, the, the broader nation doesn't, didn't really need to know about all that. That was David's experience. That wasn't everybody else's experience. He, he refuses to dehumanize him. You know, this is something that we, in our, I don't know, I think in our, in our culture today, you know, they, they used to say that, like, you know, whatever, whatever side of, whether it's the political spectrum or ideological spectrum or, or, or philosophical, whatever, whatever the other side is, we used to say those are good people with bad ideas. And now we say those are bad people with bad ideas. And, and there's this, we have this way of, or this tendency in our culture to dehumanize those that disagree with us, those that, um, that are on the other side of things. And, and, and certainly they can be wrong, very wrong in, in their positions on whatever. But they're still people. They're still image bearers of Almighty God. They are still souls in need of salvation and forgiveness. And David refuses to dehumanize Saul. He chose to view Saul, I mean, not, not so much in this, in this psalm, but he chose to view Saul as a sad, tormented man, not some kind of monster. Saul was a real person. He didn't lose sight of the fact that Saul was an image bearer of God and also God's anointed. It's just unbelievable the, the way that Saul would come at David and David would kind of like stick up for him 
to other people, like, well, hold on a second, that's God's anointed. This is, there's an important concept here. Death is a tragedy, always. He doesn't celebrate, he mourns. He mourns the man without affirming his character. And I think that's important too, to realize that we can, you can do that. You can mourn that he has died without saying he was a great guy. At no point, just for the record, at no point in this song, in the song that he writes, does he say Saul was a great guy. He doesn't affirm the character of Saul. But it does mourn him. Saul was an enemy to David, but he was a loving father. And he was a valiant warrior. And I, I just think that's a, it's, it's so powerful what, <clears throat> how David takes that position and, uh, and, and, and some lessons there for us. Um, we don't know if Saul went on to heaven or to hell. We don't know. In fact, we are so rarely in, in Scripture given that. Sometimes you can make really, really safe assumptions, like the Apostle Paul, for instance. I think that's a safe one. But, 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 but we, we don't know. And, and for, first of all, that's not for us to know. We are not the ones that will, that will judge that. God will, and his judgment will be right. But, but it offers us an opportunity to think about for a second the soul that dies and goes on to suffer the wrath of God. And I came across this quote, yes, again, Matthew Henry. Um, <clears throat> listen, it's a good commentary. Um, Matthew Henry wrote here, after I wet my whistle, if our souls are saved, our bodies will be raised incorruptible and glorious. But not to fear his wrath, who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell, is the extreme of folly and wickedness. How useless is the respect of fellow creatures to those who are suffering the wrath of God. What a powerful statement. And of course, he's writing at a time where he's um, kind of confronting the, the Catholic mindset that, that you, could, you could pray someone, you know, into heaven, even if they, anyway, that's a whole different paradigm, but they, you know, he, Matthew Henry would be writing it at a time when that was maybe a, a prevalent mindset that you know, even after someone died, we could pray for them, and uh, if we pray hard enough, you know, give enough money to the church and light enough candles, God will let them into heaven. And Scripture is super clear that that has absolutely no bearing on whether someone makes it. Um, in fact, Scripture says that it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, judgment. We don't get to intercede on behalf of someone once the final chapter is written. <clears throat> the other part of David's response here that I want to look at is that God can and often does use periods of suffering in our lives to shape our character. I, you know, I, was, I was looking at, the other, the other day, or a couple weeks ago, I guess it was, I had a, Kara and I had just gotten into bed and we're sitting there and we heard a loud sound. It was like, what on earth? I mean, the kids have been asleep for, well, theoretically asleep for, you know, an hour. 
Um, I'm pretty sure they were asleep at this point. And it sounded like, I mean, the kid's closet is like right in, you know, the other side of the wall. And it's like, man, did like everything just fall over in their closet at, at like at random? It was that loud. It was like, what on earth? is like, good, check the front yard. And at first I don't see anything. And then I realize I'm staring directly at a branch that has fallen out of the oak tree and, and just barely kind of hit the, fortunately didn't hurt anything that I know of, um, you know, hit the, hit the roof and was laying there in our front yard. It was not windy either, so um, I just want to put that out there in case any of you want to come and swing on the swing in my front yard. Just bear that in mind. Um, <clears throat> but I got thinking about that and thinking, man, I'm going to have to take those trees down. There's, there's, there are these, you know, these, these tall water oaks. There's a couple of oak, different kinds of oak trees down here. There's, there's water oaks, um, which grow pretty tall and, um, and are, are pretty nice for shade. Um, but there's kind of a shelf life on those things. Um, they they kind of they get big and then they kind of just start to rot while they're standing there, and that's what I have in my front yard. Um, the other kind of tree, the the oak tree that you, that you see in Florida, is the live oaks. Those are the ones that like the the branches just grow at impossible lengths horizontally without breaking or touching the ground and sometimes they will touch the ground and they just keep growing they don't care just it's just unbelievable to watch these things go it's like how many hurricanes has that tree seen and it's still standing up incredibly strong and it's just such a to me as I was thinking about that in the context of this passage such a powerful illustration of the strength that is gained through difficulty and, and, you know, David is like one of those oak trees. He's, he, is, he has gone through an extended period of difficulty in his life. And it has built in him strong character. He's not perfect. I want to be really clear on that. Um, it's important that David isn't perfect because we're going to look later this year at the book of Hebrews at how Jesus is the better David. No, David's not perfect, but he's the best king Israel ever has. Not Solomon. David is the best king Israel will ever have. Sometimes the periods of suffering in our lives are extended periods. Sometimes it's an intense, short season of intense difficulty. And sometimes it's long. In fact, you know, for, for some people, sometimes it, it starts late in life and continues to the end of life. Sometimes like what my wife and I are going through right now, I say my wife, mostly Kara's going through it. Um, I'm just with her. You could ask why me? You could, you could focus on how uncomfortable it is, how inconvenient it is, how difficult it is, or you could ask yourself a different question. How, how can I glorify God through this difficulty? How can I trust God 
with my well-being and let him worry about that and let me worry about how can he be glorified through this season. You know, sometimes, like David, our suffering is at the hands of the ungodly. Not always, but, but sometimes it is. David understood this, and it's important for us to gain this perspective. No one is outside of God's sovereignty. He can use anyone for his purposes and his glory. Even ungodly people, we say God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. I think it was Martin Luther that said that, and, it, and it's true. But, but God can use anyone in any way he chooses. I mean, how, many, how often did God use wicked civilizations and empires to judge his people? Here he uses Saul in the life of David in a powerful way. David during his time in the wilderness, could have had no way of knowing what was really happening in his life. It was over 10 years that he spent. You know, if, as you compare David and Saul, one had character built over a long period of time, the other did not. Saul won a popularity contest. One passed the tests that God gave him, the other did not. One trusted in God for salvation, the other consistently took matters into his own hand. And that's the whole sword and spear point right there. One was God's choice, the other was the people's choice. It turns out people's choice award is not really the one you want. Um, And you know, it's interesting, you compare David to all of his successors, and I include Solomon in this. Solomon experienced a lot of God's blessing because of David. Almost every one of the kings that succeed David grow up in affluence and privilege with a mindset that they have a right to rule. Not a single one of them had the character that David had which was forged over more than a decade between his anointing and his ascension to the throne. This season that now comes to a close in David's life, where now he will ascend the throne, uh, he's been anointed a long time ago, but now he will actually um, unify the, the nation and, and sit on the throne. That season has forged in him the character needed to be the leader that the nation needs to be the leader that God wants him to be. There's a powerful lesson in that for leadership that if you're interested in, um, yeah, come see me after. I want to touch on a couple of things before we close. Don't miss the gospel in this passage. Yes, we look for the gospel in every passage. When we look here, we see that the one who looks to his own abilities and strength is destroyed. While the one who trusts God for his salvation is saved. And is saved time and time again. You look throughout. How many times did God sustain David? By way of application, personal merit versus divine merit. Each one of us will put our trust in one of these. And which one will it be for you? You can't be good enough. 
good enough is perfect. That, that's God's standard is perfection. You can't be that. And so it doesn't matter how good you are or think you are or work really hard to be. You're not perfect, and so you will never be good enough to stand on your own merits before Almighty God and for him to approve you and say, you know what? Everybody else needed Jesus to die for their sins, but you did really good. Why don't you come in? That's, no one is hearing that ever. Every one of us can only stand on the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Even Paul says that our righteousness is like filthy rags. What I'd counted gain, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Only divine merit will sustain us and save us. And lastly, let's take a lesson from David on how to suffer well for God's glory, leaving the details up to God. We pray with me? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to open your word this morning. Thank you for this, the close of this story, even though it's tragic, God, we thank you um, for this window into character. This window into sin and judgment. This window into trusting our own strength or trusting your strength. God, I pray that anyone here who still is clinging to the baggage of personal merit would cast that aside this morning and trust in Christ alone for salvation. There's no other name given among men. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close today, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20 and 21 says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of his eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's be his witnesses this week. Amen.